Welcome to Not Quite Right. My name's Ed. And I'm Amanda. Today we'll be talking about flawed protagonists, and later we'll be out on the wily Windy Moors, where we'll be reviewing Amanda's Get Wrecked recommendation, Wuthering Heights. That was some lovely description you had there. (laughs) What was it? Wild and windy? No. Have you not heard Kate Bush's rendition of Wuthering Heights? (laughs) I have. Out on the wily Windy Moors. Right. So, Amanda, big news. Yes. We're bringing back the Not Quite Right prize. I'm excited. Well, we've talked before about how we are going for a paid comp this time because both you and I have done paid comps before and the big draw card is a much bigger prize Mm -hmm. and that's what we want to offer. So, idea being that by asking for a fee from our participants that we will be able to offer a much bigger prize at the end of it. So, tell us, what's the prize? So, we had a great time running the last comp. We offered a $300 first prize with no entry fee. This time, we are upping that total prize pool to $2,000 and the entry fee will be $25. 25 Australian dollars. 25 Australian dollars. Pennies to the rest of the world. (laughs) And one of the things that we regretted last time around was the fact that we could only award the winner. Hang on, hang on. The others won glory. There is glory, but glory doesn't pay the bills (laughs) in this economy. (laughs) So this time around, the prizes will extend down to the shortlist. So Mm. the entire shortlist will get a prize. And the winner will get the biggest prize of half that prize pool of $1,000. Mm-hmm. And in addition to the top six, we've got two wild cards mm-hmm. in there. So that's two stories that we believe are worthy of recognition that for whatever reason didn't make the shortlist, they will also get a cash prize as well. And we don't want to preempt what that's going to be. I mean, it could be just using the most swear words based on the last You're always trying to get our, our entrance to swear as much as possible for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah, got, it, it could be issues. that. It could be the best young author. Best comedy, perhaps. What didn't make the shortlist, but what? really grabbed us. Yeah. So it's a wild card. Mm. Definitely last time around, there were several stories that we wanted to recognize, Mm. but for whatever reason, didn't fall into the shortlist. So once again, prizes to the top six, to the shortlist and the biggest prize for the winner, but also two wild card prizes. Yeah. So basically eight cash prizes, right? Eight cash prizes. Yes. And totaling up to $2,000. So that's very exciting. And I guess the format's going to be the same or similar. So we've got 60 hours. We're going to have the anti-prompt, which is my favorite and a couple of other prompts, but we're also going to have this time 500 word limit. Mm Mm-hmm. 60 hours, I yeah. believe, is the yeah. is the time frame, yep. Yeah, it's like a midday to midnight. And we haven't said the date. Mm-hmm. So the date will Ooh. be the 19th of January, 2024. So just after everyone is back from the new year, you just You're still done. digesting your Christmas or whatever celebration that you celebrate, but That's hopefully right. with food. You've checked your bank balance. There's $25 left <laughs> in your account. You need to pay the bills. <laughs> you can either go to the casino, put it all on black and hope, Or you can enter the not quite right prize. That's it. I mean, I think, I don't know who can relate to this, but you come out of Christmas and maybe this, is this a mum thing? I don't know. But you just invest so much of yourself into everyone around you, making sure everyone's got the presents, the in-laws have got the presents, all of this stuff. And then maybe you come out of it not having everything you wanted in your Mm -hmm. Santa sack. So this is a little gift for yourself as well, I think. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, so we're really excited to be able to bring the prize back. We had so much fun doing it last time and this really gives us an opportunity to make it bigger. And part of this is just making, as we said in the in a previous episode, we want to make this sustainable. We want to do it again and again. We want to mm. keep running these competitions and this is the way to do it. We cannot read... 700 entries every every few months. <laughs> I guess we're not expecting 700 entries this time because we know it's not in everyone's budget mm. to take a gamble on a story that they wrote. And so that's fine. If it's not for you, uh, we respect that and we wish you well. But for those of you for whom it is, you know, achievable within your budget or for whom want to really take that gamble on their skill and their writing talent, then I guess the pool of entries is going to be smaller, most likely. So your chances of making that top eight is gonna be higher that's true and if you happen to not be from australia and you happen to be from a country with a currency that is worth <laughs> something <laughs> if you're from uh, the uk or if you're from america that's 15 quid or 15 dollars for yeah, you roughly, roughly something like that depending on the exchange rate which is which is always tanking so <laughs> hey if you're from the us feel free to tip us <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> But what else? So we're offering a little something else. So I guess we've done some figures about our expected entry numbers. And basically what we're projecting is that the entire sum of everybody's entry fee is going to be going to these prizes. Yep. And so for us to, you know, to recoup some of the costs of production for the podcast, you know, we don't advertise currently. We don't have Patreon or anything like that. And so we thought we'd offer something a little bit different instead and something maybe that's of more value to you than a generic mm. ad. And so tell us about that. Yeah, so I guess even before the paid perks that we're talking about, there is the free perk, is the Not Quite Right Forum. Mm. So one of the things we want to open up as part of this prize is the ability to post your story onto our forum and that forum will be exclusive for entrance and that will be part of your entry fee. Yeah, so, you know, depending on who shares what, basically you'll get an insight into what other people have entered into the comp, not just those who make the shortlist, but other people as well. You'll have the opportunity to request feedback on your story and to share feedback on other people's stories and potentially even make some new writing friends. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, and that's really important to grow as a writer is to get exposure to what other people are writing, get that feedback from other writers. And just to ask everyone a massive favour... Just based on our previous conversations mm. about the New York City Midnight Forum, can you just be, like, honest with yep. each other? We really want to try. Well, the problem that we're going to have is that we can't read those entries no. until after we finish the judging because that would prejudice yeah, us little, towards, the, <laughs> towards the outcome. But we really hope that people are honest in, in their feedback. And that doesn't mean slagging off and trashing other people's work. No. That means providing actual constructive growth. Like, criticism. we want growth. We want yeah. everyone to come out of this with something new that maybe they didn't come into it with before. Yeah. So that's the free part. That's the part that's included in the entry fee. But we also want to continue to offer, which we did last time as a kind of a postscript, but this time we're doing it up front. We want to offer personalised feedback and critique on your story for... Forty-five dollars. Mm -hmm. We'll have a sample of what that will look like on yeah. the website. Yeah, so you um, know what you you can expect from that. Exactly. I guess my experience of providing feedback this time around was that it was quite labour intensive mm. because it really does require you know a lot of 
creative and emotional energy yeah. to invest yourself in someone's story and to provide meaningful feedback. So I hope you all felt that you got value from that. I certainly felt like it was worth the price of entry. But having said that, I feel like I have poor boundaries and mm. I maybe <laughs> you put went a, a little of, bit overboard. You put a lot of work into that feedback. Yeah. And the template that you built and that you used was multiple pages and it was a mm. lot of feedback and mm. a lot of hours spent per piece of feedback. And that all comes from a, a place of wanting to make you a better writer that's it. But I love this, this shit, comes but... at the expense of uh, Amanda's time and Amanda has no time as it is. <laughs> so, I should be writing my own goddamn book. <laughs> yeah. So this time it will be a little bit more simplified. You'll get you get feedback from me and from Amanda and it will be a little bit more concise. And, but hopefully uh, pointed... just as meaningful, meaningful constructive feedback that will hopefully push you forward. Yeah. And we wanted to add one other value add. As I love a, this one. As this an, is my favourite. As an option. And I think we're in uniquely placed to do this as, as a podcast. And that is for $100. We will read out your story on the podcast and critique it quote unquote live on the show, <laughs> tell you our thoughts about it, where it can be improved, where you've done well and put that out for the world to see. We can put your name out there if you like. We can yeah, withhold you your name if you so <laughs> desire. I think that would be really exciting. I mean, it's only for the the daredevils out there. Like you've mm. got to have some some guts to do that Absolutely. one, to put yourself out there like that. But at the same time, you know, we're not here to shit on people. We're no. here to support and hopefully boost yeah. other writers. So I think that would be really fun. And I hope, I hope we get some interest in that one because I'd yeah. love to do that. I'd love And to. I had a great time reading out and talking about the shortlisted entries mm. the last time we ran the prize. I think that's going to be fun for us as well. Absolutely. So, look, we're really excited to do this next comp with you guys and we hope you're excited too. We had so much fun and I know we got a lot of feedback from people who entered who had a lot of fun as well. Just this real, like, celebration of creativity and everybody just bringing something new that didn't exist before and I really can't wait to do that again. Absolutely. January 19. Put in the diary. Ask for a ticket for your Christmas present if you have to. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And head on over to the website. We will have a register link to register to the email list so you'll hear everything you need to know about when entries open, how much everything costs, what you get in a lot of detail. That will all be up on the website soon. And until then, we hope that you register on the website and we hope that you're looking forward to it as much as we are. You. So it's been a little while since we spoke about the book that you're writing. And last time we spoke about it, you were kind of approaching the end of your first draft. Mm. So how's it all going? Um, I'm still approaching the end of my <laughs> first draft. Hasn't really gone anywhere since we last spoke about it. Sort of fell into a plot hole and never climbed mm. out. <laughs> is this, our, this is our therapy this session? Is, this is writing therapy. Okay. All right. Okay. <clears throat> I'm ready. Okay. So... I think you're getting up to write every day for, mm. what, an hour, two hours? Yeah, roughly. And then sometimes more later on. What, for a good couple of months? Yeah, months? probably. Yeah. What was your word count in the end? Oh, I got you? over 40,000. I yeah. can't remember. Yeah. And it's a kid's book that I'm writing, so it's not really much more than that that I was aiming for. I think yeah. I had about two chapters left. Okay. <laughs> And that was probably, what, a couple of months ago? Yeah, that was a couple of months ago. Yeah, and I know we've been very busy the last couple of months. Hmm. But yeah, what happened? I think it's the same thing that always happens to me. This one in particular, I had plotted it all out. I'd done my plotter job and I had a spreadsheet and I had flashcards and I had this whole thing going on, except that I'd left the end, like mm. the climax out, because I didn't really know how to end it at the time. And I thought, 
the ending will write itself. Once everything else is together, I'll have a flow and I'll know where it's going and I don't need to think about that now. I'll let that happen. Unfortunately, I did need to think about it because it didn't naturally flow in the way that I wanted it to. And maybe the red flag was that I couldn't think of how to end it when I was plotting it. And so I guess it really, it broke my flow because I didn't know where to go next. And I was stopping and starting and trying to do it and not really happy with anything that was coming out. And then at the same time, my birthday was approaching. It was the end of financial year. My work was insanely busy. My personal life was insanely busy. And I guess I just dropped it. I dropped the Mm. ball. And I haven't really gotten less busy. I mean, certainly I could have still continued to get up in the morning and write. And I suppose the reason I haven't is because I don't know what to write next. Mm. I think I've infuriated everyone around me. All my writing group buddies are just like, what are you doing? Like, you're so close. Yes. Like, just Can you just write shit? Write the end and then we'll fix it later. We'll help you. Yeah. You know, and I fully get that and I wish I could and I just can't for some reason. So you tell me, what's wrong with me, Doc? I don't know. Like, what do you feel is the blocker? Because you've spoken about plot, but you're a pretty analytical person. Like, if it was someone else's story, you would look at it and say, oh, well, you could do X, Y, and Z. Mm. So do you think it's, is it just a matter of sitting down and taking the time to work through those issues and coming up with, like, brainstorming five different alternatives Mm. and trying to choose one and then develop that one? Or do you think that there's something in you that is kind of detached from it now, like it's more of a psychological thing, you need to get yourself back into the spirit of it? I'm sure it's at least partially psychological. Like, you know, I could just write garbage for two chapters and come back to it later and fix it. Like I could just get to the end. And as you say, I am analytical. And I think part of the problem is that I sort of have a a standard that I'm trying to achieve. It's first draft. I'm not trying to achieve perfection by any means, but I want it to make sense at least. Mm. (laughs) And it's very hard for me to write it if I'm not at least on some level thinking this is kind of okay. It's not really the prose that I have the issue with. It's the plot. Yeah. I just don't know where it needs to go. And so that's a layered problem because I think I can already see issues with my first draft that need fixing. And I don't really want to go back and start fixing those yet until it's Mm. finished. But one of the big problems is I think that the story is overly complicated. So there's too much going on. There's too many sort of threads. And so the climax of the story then needs to weave in just the threads that I'm going to keep. And I guess I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to keep. And I said before that it's the same problem I always have. And I think that problem, the problem I always have is that I lose faith in the story. And I feel like I don't believe that this story is interesting enough. It's not the writing so much. It's more, there's something fundamentally wrong with the story and I'm not sure I can fix it. I mean, you've given advice before that is step away from your work Mm. or get feedback from other other writers or other readers because when it's something of such length as well, 50,000 words, and you've just been reading it and reading it and reading mm. it and rereading the bits that you've read, of course it's not new to you mm. and you know what's going to happen. It feels predictable and it feels mm. like not a fresh idea mm. and that's normal. So maybe you just need other people to read it. Well, this is the point I'm at. I did go back to it probably a month ago now and I thought, okay, I've got a bit of spare time. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to sit down and read it again because it has been a little while. Just read it through 
and just see where that takes me. Like mm. no pressure to have a result, but just to read it and then see where am I going to go next. And I think my idea was that if I read it through, I would have an idea of like, okay, I'm ready to share it with some friends and ask them some specific questions. But I started reading it and I hated it so much yeah. <laughs> that I had to put it away again because I know I've been doing this long enough now that I know that that's a mood. I will get over that. I will love it again. And the bits I don't love, I'll get rid of. And it's not really a big deal. So I've sort of evolved to a point where I know that if, I, if I'm if i hating it, it's just not a good day to look at because <laughs> yeah. I'll get too vigorous with the editing and the delete key. But yeah, I wasn't in a position then to share it. And it's not that I'm embarrassed to share it or anything like that. I'm more than happy to share it with people. It's more like I don't want to waste that opportunity until it's going to be super helpful. Yeah. You know, I don't want to ask all my friends to read it and then it's not ready to be read yet. But I think part of the problem for me too is that I'm an extrovert, right? In mm. the sense that I get my energy from other people. I need other people's input to understand my own thoughts. So when it comes to writing, which is often very insular kind of activity, I can do that. I can write, write, write. But in the world of ideas, like I really need other people's input to understand what I want to do. Yeah. I, do, I don't feel like I have that clarity in my own head about what ideas I like and don't like until I have that conversation with someone. And now I'd love to workshop the ending of this book with other writers. That I would love to do that and I feel like that would solve the problem. But because the story is so complicated, it would require them to read the whole thing, to invest in all the working parts to understand mm. what the issues are. I can't just sort of go, oh, here's a quick plot summary tell me what you think, how it should end. Because in giving a summary, I'm already like cutting out heaps of stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But I mean, you can do that. We're talking about a children's book of or yeah. middle grade book of 50,000 words. It's not war and peace. No. Feels um, like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's a massive investment. And like you said, if that's the kind of thing that might at least give you some inspiration to, to keep going, I think you're probably being too hard on yourself. Because that was the thing. I'm like, okay, I realise I'm at a block here. I realise that my friends can help. So I'm just going to read it through and just sort of get my shit together, then share it. Mm. And then because I hated it so much, like I said, I'm not really embarrassed to share it, but the opening of it is so bad, which is, again, a weakness of mine, is the opening. And it's like, ugh. <laughs> like I just really, like I'm not embarrassed, but I am. I actually am really embarrassed. Well, then maybe you just need to like... You don't want to go back and rewrite things, mm. but maybe you do. Maybe going back and rewriting the the opening and kind of picking out where you think the weaknesses are, mm. that might give you some motivation. Like, now I actually like the opening. I'm a bit more feeling mm. the story. I guess the problem is, like, the opening and the climax are kind of work together. Yeah. And so they're both a problem. And I'm not sure how I would rewrite the opening because I've already tried to think of a million different ways to start it and I haven't found the answer to that yet on my own. Okay. Well, the other suggestion I was going to make is for the ending. Mm. I mean, if that's the problem and, and you're kind of saying, well, I've got this ending that you've, you've been building towards, mm. but you're not sure if the strands that you've been building are really the ones that are going to have yeah. the impact in the ending. Exactly. So, have you thought about just putting the story aside and just writing what you think that that ending should be and, you know, starting from scratch, but just with the ending? Mm. And then you can kind of go back and weave those little extra strands I back mean, into the story true. once you've decided. That's probably a really good idea. Like, no, I haven't. I probably should do something like that. I guess I just feel so blank. Yeah. Like I just, and, and maybe it's just a case of going back to it again and on a day when I'm feeling better about it. Yeah. 
So the idea of like, just go to the ending and figure out what that's going to be like, okay. Well, like if I could do that, that's what I would have fucking done. (laughs) (laughs) It's like when I go to Andy, I'm like, oh, I'm really worried about all this stuff and it's all really stressful. And he's like, have you tried just not like not fucking worrying about it? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he would never say that. He just implies it. But yeah, that's the issue. Have you tried fixing the problem? Like, yeah, I have. I failed. Yeah. And that's why we're here. So what do you think you're going to do? Is it it over? No, I mean, I guess part of it is that, like, I still want to finish it. And I'm a finisher, you know. Like, I'm not going to just leave it hanging with two chapters to go. Like, I'll get the first draft finished one day. (laughs) Do you know what I'd really love? And I feel like this is so frustrating. I'd really love, like, an actual editor. (laughs) If I had an editor, like someone who's been published before, they've got their editor to work with to just workshop ideas that are going to work. That would be perfect. Mm. That's all I need because I'm happy to just go off and do it. But it's this lack of like the cohesive whole of what the plot needs to be. My daughters, we were talking about in the car and I had been writing each day and then in the car on the way to school telling them what I'd written the day before or that morning. And so they were keeping up with the story and they were so excited to hear more. And then it got to the point where they're like, hang on, like it's, you haven't told us anything. What's happening? It's been yeah. a couple of weeks. Why, why haven't you told us? I'm like, oh, I stopped. Oh, why'd you stop? Oh, I didn't, I didn't know how it needed to end. And my daughter's like, well, everyone, it just needs to be happy. Everyone needs to be happily ever after. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Easy. It's so insightful. But like, it, she's totally right in a way. Like it really is that simple. I just need to wrap it up. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it's just the hardest thing ever. So, but I don't know. This is why I guess I'm curious, like what you think we were talking about. Is it the actual problem with the story or a psychological problem? Like, is it a psychological problem? Feels like one because it should be simple, but it's not. Look, I, I read one of your other stories mm. that you wrote several years <laughs> that ago. That I quarter wrote, third wrote? <laughs> no, I think it was about two thirds. Was it? Oh, good on me. So it was almost all written. And what, that what was I just saying about being a finisher? <laughs> yeah. So I thought, I thought the same thing about that and I was getting into the story and the characters and enjoying it and then it just ended. And and we were talking about it and you said, well, oh, I couldn't think of how to, you know, there was a plot element that you mm. were caught up on mm. that didn't quite work, but it would have made sense. And I think you could have just smoothed over it or you could have mm. presented in a way where it what didn't really matter. I mean, your plot doesn't have to be watertight and it doesn't mm. have to hold up in court. Mm. You know? like it's, <laughs> but I think in that story, it was, there was a legal aspect. It was a legal aspect. Yeah. So literally it did have to hold up in court. But, but you know, <laughs> have, have you ever seen a, like a courtroom drama or whatever and, and the process they follow bears, has no bearing on real yes. life? Yes, I have. And that's why it pisses me off and I don't want to do that. As a as former a 13, law student myself, and I watch Law and Order. As and a 13-year-old reader, you're probably not going to pick up on the intricacies of That's the true. law there. So. That's true. And in that case, it was about the characters and, and do the characters actually reach kind of – because you set up these different characters with, I guess, different desires and outcomes that they wanted to get. And there was mm. like some animosity or disagreement between two of them and you wanted that to kind of resolve and one of them to get the upper hand on the other one. Mm. And that's all that kind of needed to happen. Yeah. Is this true to the Australian legal system is not the question that <laughs> Listen, needed answering in that are story. are you accusing me of being an overthinker? I, th- I think you might be. I'm deeply offended by that. <laughs> so what's the diagnosis then? And what's my, uh, my medicine? <laughs> Do I get medicine or hypnotherapy? What are we doing here? I mean, my view, and it's, it's hard for me to say, just do it, but what's the alternative? Yeah. You know, you say you're not feeling it and you'll just put it aside. 
but likely you'll put it aside and lose interest in it because mm. now that's something that you did once upon a time mm. and maybe you'll have another idea. And mm. like, well, I don't know, maybe that's the right thing to do, but I don't think- I, I don't feel like it is. I mean, the last full first draft that I wrote, I had some lovely feedback on and stuff, but I fully lost faith in that plot, fully lost faith in it myself and decided to treat it as a learning experience and move on from it rather than to try and workshop it to death. This one, I'm like, it's got more promise to me. And certainly when you look at what's on the shelf now, I'm like, it holds up against what else is on the shelf, particularly Ando, who stole my idea, but we won't go there again. But like, you know, it's fine. It's fine. Like I do overthink it and then I have to come back and go, it's fine. Like a kid would read this and think it was great and I just have to bloody finish it. But then there's this other part of me that's just cropped up recently. And I don't know if it's, if you'd diagnose this as a midlife crisis, maybe you would. But I've started to think, like, am I really a writer? Like, I've spent so long trying. Mm. And, I mean, certainly life's gotten in the way. It's not like I've been full-time writing for 11 years, but I've certainly been full-time thinking about it and writing when I can. And it comes to a point where you're like, is this my skill? Like, am I actually a writer? And I'm like, maybe I'm something else. Mm. I don't know. Like, an editor. I am a frustrated editor. I feel like I have more skill in seeing other people's faults. (laughs) And having solutions for other people's problems than I do for my own. But when you think about it, the only difference between being a writer and not being a writer is like finishing the the story. So you can be a writer if you just finish the story. Fucking hell. Where's your novel, mate? (laughs) (laughs) Hand it over. I've just got two chapters to go. That's it. (laughs) In my experience, no matter what you do, there's going to be imposter syndrome. But everyone is feeling that. It's not so much, it's not even imposter syndrome. It's just like, have I evolved into something else? Like, Mm. is this maybe not what I was meant to be doing all this time? Like, Mm. or no, I was meant to be doing this all this time to prepare me for something else. Yeah. But not to prepare me to keep doing this forever. Yeah. But do you think there's an element of you came to this realisation right at the finish line? And that's your point. And wouldn't wouldn't it make sense to just cross the finish line, see how it goes, just come and then find out the answer to your question, like later, (laughs) like like when I've fucking done it. Yeah, I I feel like at some point you just need to say, "Fuck it, just do it," and then whatever happens, happens. Mm. And maybe it's it's great and and it gets published and you're successful, or maybe it doesn't, and then you're like, "Well, now I can decide if I want to do it again." Yeah. I think you're right. I think, look, this is the point I'd come to a month ago where I thought I've really got to share this with other people because I've obviously Mm. hit a brick wall myself. And like you say, I don't want to leave it so long that it becomes a distant memory and I can't get back into it. I want to finish it. I really do. Like, I really want to get these last chapters done. And if I knew what it was going to be, I would just smash it out. I would just, if I knew the plot, I would smash out those chapters and I would be ecstatic. So I, I do think maybe... I am at that point where I need to share it and I just have to suck up the fact that it's garbage and a bit embarrassing and that's fine. I can edit it and just hope that having other people who know the whole story, who I can then bounce ideas off, I think would be really helpful because it is too difficult to just sort of try and summarise and go, and what do you think? It's, it, yeah. you know, no one's going to have that capacity to understand because it is so complicated. Yeah, but I mean, you can trust the people yeah. around you that they will do that. I mean, I'll read it, obviously. and You'll be kind, won't you? Well, no, we just spent this whole episode talking about giving and receiving feedback. So, no. (laughs) 
Okay, tough love. <laughs> All right, but I am in a very sensitive phase. You could put me off That's forever. True. Yeah, I'm not going to come and say it's garbage. I'm just I also spent that whole episode, if I recall, saying how fucking tough I was and how I could handle criticism. Yeah. I'm feeling very fragile <laughs> right now. Okay, I'm full of shit. I'm all taught. Yeah. If you hadn't noticed. <laughs> so now that we've finished talking about all of my flaws. Oh, shit. <laughs> no, I'm not <laughs> talking about you. Settle down. I'm going to talk about flawed protagonists. I was trying to make a fucking segue, no, no, mate. Nice segue. I guess just when I think about Wuthering Heights, I just think about how horrible everyone is in that story. Yeah. And it just made me start to think about flawed protagonists more generally. And I think it's a really interesting area of writing. You know, obviously all protagonists must have some flaws. It's not much point telling us a story about a perfect human. Mm. Nobody wants to read that. That's incredibly depressing (laughs) to read about someone who's perfect. So when I think of flawed protagonists, I think, you know, there's a distinction to be drawn between a protagonist or main character who has some flaws and often flaws that are then resolved by the end of the story versus a character whose flaws are so deeply ingrained in part of who they are that in some cases they become unlikable or that it becomes more about their flaws than Mm. it is about their ability to overcome their flaws, if that makes sense. So it's much more central. They're much more difficult to like. And I guess that's what makes them interesting. Yeah, I think the flaw itself becomes not just an element of their character, but it becomes instrumental to the plot. That's like it. That they undermine their own success or they, they cause mm. what happens in the plot and through I that think, flaw. I think to some degree, again, all protagonists have some sort of flaw that mm. they need to overcome to be able to win the day in the end. But in this case, we're talking about a situation where it's their undoing. Mm. And I think... The really interesting thing is how to write a character like that and still have people love them enough to want to Mm. see them through to the end. And that's the challenge. So we're not just talking about a normal person who, I don't know, they're a bit shy. Yeah. (laughs) And by the end of the book or the movie or what have you, they're able to sing on stage. You know, this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about someone who's like a criminal yeah. You know, and they treat their friends and family like shit and they probably suffered some trauma in their past and this is what the story's about. It's basically about them just ruining their own life or mm. ruining the lives of those around them and then, you know, they may not overcome it but the point is more about how those flaws impact them profoundly. It's a funny line because I don't think a f- the flawed protagonist necessarily needs to be liked by the reader at the end of it, mm. despite their flaws necessarily. Yeah. Like there are a lot of characters that are compelling even though they're not likable. And I, mm. I would say, you know, preempting our discussion about Wuthering Heights, Heathcliff is an example of someone who I came away absolutely not liking. Mm almost in any way, Mm. like there's very few redeeming qualities and yet he's not in that kind of anti-hero. Do we talk about that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So an anti-hero is someone who in my view is, is flawed, deeply flawed, but in a way that. You want um, to cheer for them. Yeah. In a way that you can identify with, even though it's a negative characteristic of them or a negative character trait that they have with them, it is to some degree shared or understood or empathised with. And so you can kind of get behind that character, even though you may disagree with what they're doing or how they're going about their life. What I would think of, so I guess there's a few different types of characters here that we're talking about. When we talk about protagonists, we're really talking about usually 
the main character of the story, the one who's propelling the plot along, basically mm. the one who's making shit happen and the one who the story's about. More often than not, that's what we're talking about when we say protagonist. And so I've just sort of, I guess, described what I think a protagonist is. You've brought up the anti-hero. There's also a villain as a protagonist, mm-hmm. so a story about a villain. So they're not really an anti-hero. We don't, like, they're a villain, but the yeah. story happens to be about them. And there's also what I'd call a tragic hero where they've got a fatal flaw, yeah. but it's it's more tragic. It's not yeah. so unlikable kind of thing. And when you bring up anti-hero, and I think that's really interesting, and a good example that I can think of is Walter White. I would call him an anti-hero because you're on his side. Like yeah. I think, And I think part of the anti-hero appeal often is that they're up against the man and you, mm. you don't like the man. So you're happy for someone to take the man down, even if it's through illegal means or... Or what have you. I mean, I think Walter White does some incredibly despicable things and yet you're on his side the whole time somehow. Yeah. And it, it's is it just because he's super fucking cool? I don't know. And he's but got a cool hat. Is that what it's about? To be a hero? Yeah, you he's got great a- lines and he's got good screen persona. Yeah. Uh, but I think there's that whole genre of gangster movies mm. like The Godfather. And mm, yeah, another one. A bunch of anti-heroes there. And Scarface. Mm. All these people who are murderers and... Violent criminals, but the story is told with the implicit view that this is the person that you're identifying with or that you should be. super cool. Because they're super cool and the cool factor is a big part of it. (laughs) And it's fiction at the end of the day too, so it's not like they're actually coming to murder your family. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Also, like when we're talking Walter White, like Skylar is a massive bitch, so that's a factor. (laughs) (laughs) You're not on on Team Wife. I'm definitely not on Team Wife with Skylar. (laughs) So I also mentioned the villain as protagonist and a good example I can think of there is Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker. Yes. And I love that movie so much because it is so rare to have a villain as the protagonist of the story. Mm. I think there's the Maleficent movie as well and there's certainly other examples. But the distinction there I think is that there's still a villain. Like he is still a villain and I wouldn't call him a flawed protagonist because he's maybe at the beginning he's a flawed protagonist. But it's what we call a fall arc. Like we watch him go from good to evil instead of the Mm. other way around. Like we're not getting redemption at the end. We're getting, you know, descent into. Yeah. And that's the same with Walter White as well. Similar kind of arc. Yeah. And the Joker movie, I think is, I'm not sure if it was based on or draws a lot of parallels with Taxi Driver. Right. Travis Bickle. Mm. It's It's a similar story. He's very unlikable character. But what makes him an antihero, I think, is that he kind of encapsulates something about a social ill that is shared by a lot of people. And in that case, it was people returning from the Vietnam War Mm. and their their treatment back in America because it was a very unpopular war. And I don't know where you draw the line, but I guess it's how far do you go? (laughs) They go too far. I mean, Walter White in the beginning is absolutely, you know, you start maybe as a flawed protagonist and by the end you're the villain kind of thing. And I think most of those are probably a good example of that. And there is the fall arc versus a positive change arc. So, and most stories are a positive change arc. We see a protagonist who has some kind of flaw like being shy Mm. and by the end they overcome that and that's the climax of the Mm. story and everyone's satisfied that they have become a better person basically. And in the fall arc, it's the opposite we watch someone unravel and become yeah. bad for in in the case of the Joker for good reason, I would say like you, you can certainly sympathize with that character and you certainly, I guess, can understand and appreciate why he turned bad, but and that doesn't necessarily, but you're not like no, still on his side <laughs> in the sense that he's gone too far. 
Well, it's. I think it's fun to indulge that fantasy a little bit and mm. to just imagine, like, yeah, fuck the man kind of thing. Mm. But it's not real, like you said. Yeah. And if that was a real-life person, of course, yeah, if you, it was you the wouldn't news. be on their side. <laughs> if it was the news, yes, <laughs> you would be on their side. If Elon Musk actually, like, <laughs> turned into the cartoon villain that I think he is. Yeah. But yeah, and so... Let's talk about some examples of flawed protagonists then. We've talked about some things that maybe aren't quite a flawed protagonist. Mm. So, Actually, speaking of Elon Musk, real-life flawed protagonists, mm. because mm. I was thinking about Donald Trump. Is he an anti-hero or oh, is he a, a flawed protagonist? Listen, that's incredibly sensitive topic. <laughs> I would call him the villain as protagonist. He's just the villain. He's not the fucking protagonist. Oh, but for to many he's people, he is, an, he is the hero as well. So, well, this is the thing. It depends what side of the fence yeah. you're on. But I would say, in in my case, he's not the protect. He thinks he's the fucking protagonist if, if of every a, story. If he was in a novel, if the novel was about him, I yeah. tell you, do you know what he is? Mm. He's literally the extra who tells Macaulay Culkin's character where the Trump Towers are, or whatever <laughs> it is in, in Home Alone Two. That's who he is. <laughs> That's all he'll ever be to me. I mean, and maybe that's the thing that, that makes them true to life. The, the, these are the same characters that we find compelling in the real world, like mm. the Donald Trumps, the Elon Musks, the Kanye Wests, <laughs> the people with that, let's mm. say, one or more fatal flaws. <laughs> <laughs> and yet they're not dead. <laughs> so tell me, who are some great literary flawed protagonists? So going back to like the very first novel, almost Don Quixote, mm. he's a bit of a flawed protagonist. It's like, been so long since I've read that. I don't really remember. Isn't he saving everyone? Well, Secreting them out of... He's running about and fighting imaginary enemies. And mm. I don't know if this fully qualifies, but mm. he's definitely a flawed protagonist. He's a bit of a loon. Mm -hmm. So I think the idea of the flawed protagonist goes back very early. I've got a few more examples. So mm -hmm. Alex from The Clockwork Orange. Mm -hmm. I had to bring that up. Yes, of course. about that before. Naturally. Um, His flaw is that he blinks too much. And so you've got to stop him from doing that. <laughs> He needs a lot of visine. That's his flaw. Well, he, again, he's more of an anti-hero, I think, because... Again, he's a, he's up against the man. He's up against the man and he represents kind of, uh, something that is within us all a little bit, but he takes it to the extreme. Mm. On along the same lines, like there's a bunch of these similar kind of male figures, specifically like Patrick Bateman from mm -hmm. American Psycho, Tyler Durden from Fight Club, yep. Holden Caulfield from Catcher in the Rye, Leela Charula from the My Brilliant Friend series of novels. I don't know that one. So she's, it's an Italian series. And her flaw as a character, I mean, she has many flaws, but she's, you know, she's ambitious, she's smart, but she's also constantly undermining herself with her pride and her anger. She's very quick to, to emotions and she mm -hmm. has this cycle of lifting herself out of poverty and then just destroying it all. She's very self-destructive. She's constantly creating these own problems for herself. What about Holden Caulfield? What's he doing? Just catching all that freaking rye. Catching all the rye, man. He's, that's his weakness. You can't get enough of that rye. <laughs> that sweet, sweet rye. Well, I was thinking of, more recently, Charlie, our mate from The Whale. Yeah. So, you know, deeply flawed character, absentee father, mm. horrible husband who left his wife for a man. Yep. And who doesn't even particularly seem apologetic about any of that. He's pretty satisfied with his choices. Not to mention, obviously, his incredibly self-destructive behaviour of eating himself to death. Mm. 
So, you know, he's a good example from recent times and very unlikable. And yet because you build that empathy because you're seeing into his life and the reasons why he is the way he is, even though I don't think it redeems him, you can sort of become enmeshed in it in a way and to to understand it. Yeah, and I think that's what makes a flawed protagonist successful. Again, kind of thinking forward to Wuthering Heights and, and Heathcliff is that there needs to be some understanding of why the character is like that. Mm. If the character is just an asshole, then you can never really get behind that character. But with Heathcliff, there's a whole host of reasons why that is the case. Exactly. And with with Charlie, yes, there's a there's a history there and you can see things from his point and you may not agree with everything, but his actions are... They make they're, sense. They're human actions. Yeah. They're not the actions of a monster or someone mm. who's inherently despicable. So I think that's having And they're that, reactions too, aren't they? Yeah. He's reacting to trauma and to abuse and to all sorts of Yeah, stuff. so you have to kind of limit the culpability of that character in order to, to make them empathetic in that way. Never likeable necessarily, not someone you can get behind, but... Mm. Yeah, there has to be something there. So some other examples I had was Theo Decker in The Goldfinch. So he's a straight-up criminal art thief and forger Mm -hmm. who has incredibly problematic self-destructive behaviours. He's a drug addict and has terrible issues in relationships, but again is dealing with grief over the loss of sudden loss of his mother in a terrorist attack. So it's all intertwined, you know. Yeah. And the timing of his becoming an art thief is the same time he loses his mum. And so it just becomes this whole enmeshed story. We've got some other classics too, like Dorian Gray, Mm -hmm. who's deeply, deeply flawed, but he's still hot, so it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) And then we've got Jay Gatsby. Yeah, I've got got him. But like... I don't know about him. I wouldn't call him a flawed protagonist. It's implied he's a criminal and stuff. Mm. He's not really overtly doing any deeply criminal stuff. I mean, he's drinking, but we all support that. (laughs) When I was in year 10, I think, I had to write an essay that was set by the teacher, and this was at a Christian school. The subject of the essay was, was Gatsby a good person? Mm. And I argued that he was. And that's why you got good marks. <laughs> no, I, I argued that he was. Or I, don't, I, I didn't get good marks on this one because oh. the teacher came back and said no. Because there's, he, a, there's he, a correct answer here. You can't was, just have an opinion. Well, my view was, well, yeah, he, he broke the law, but mm. that doesn't make him a, a mm. bad person. Necessarily, <laughs> yeah. He didn't do anything that, that I think is morally a big problem. And the, the teacher came back and said, no, he's a bad person because he broke the law and he was a bootlegger. But- that's just a person who sells but, alcohol. But that's just like that's just a style of jeans. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not like yeah. there's a difference between breaking the law and doing something that's no. Well, moral, this is this know? is my point. Yeah, like I I don't find him to be a flawed protagonist. I mean, he's got his obsession, mm. but like he's just in love. Yeah. You know, he's not stalking or. And it's it, actually a very similar plot, isn't it, to Wuthering Heights with the? No, it isn't. What do you mean? Well, I mean, he the whole thing with Gatsby is that he's fallen in love with Daisy. Yeah, right. And he goes and makes something of himself and becomes wealthy and yeah, comes back and tries to woo Daisy, but Daisy's married. To, it's like the same plot. Yeah, I guess. Mm. I mean, well, settle down. Same no, plot's same. going a bit far, but that in, plot element is the same, yes. Yeah. And in Wuthering Heights, when there's that car accident, it's the same. <laughs> <laughs> and wasn't there some green light at the end of a moor? Mm. And, and super, super classic flawed protagonist, mm. Scrooge. Oh, yeah. Ebenezer Scrooge or Scrooge McDuck, depending on your 
personal yeah. party affiliation. But yeah, deeply, deeply flawed protagonist. Well, yeah. greedy bastard, I mean. With all those money vaults that he has. But he's, yeah, with, <laughs> that he likes to swim in. Yeah. But also, like, he's pretty rough to Tiny Tim. And, and that's an example of a story that has that redemption arc at the end of it. Yeah. He, he yeah. sees the little boy. What day is this? <laughs> <laughs> and then again, it's the same. It's actually the same plot as Wuthering Heights when you think <laughs> about it, because there's ghosts and shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same. It's all, it's all just recycled, isn't it? Yeah. Honestly, if I had written Wuthering Heights and then I realised, like I picked up A Christmas Carol mm. and read it, I'd be like, oh shit, it's already been done. <laughs> The ghost thing's already been done. And they were pretty much released at the same time. Were they? They were released, um, published four years apart. God, that's weird, isn't it? Mm. That just blew my tiny little mind. So which was first? Uh, so who stole whose idea? Christmas Carol was first. Right. So Dickens invented ghosts. And then... <laughs> <laughs> and Christmas. <laughs> and Christmas, that's it. <laughs> and it got really popular <laughs> really quickly. So I guess, again, like we said, you know, every protagonist has got to have some sort of flaw or else they're not going to be relatable. And that's what this is all about. It's it's really about how we relate to the characters. And as you indicated, we don't have to love them, but we do have to care about what's happening to them. We have to be invested. And we may be invested because we hate them, but they're still evoking this feeling in us. And I think what's really important to remember too, and you get this in writing advice, you know, when you're writing antagonists, you know, the villains of the story, that you have to make sure their actions are logical. So we can't just have an empty villain who's just evil for the sake of evil because that's hollow and it's not believable. Mm. And might, you might get away with it in a, you know, a kid's book or something like that. But for a novel, it has to be believable that the antagonist has a good reason for wanting to do harm. And I guess the same can then be said for a flawed protagonist. We have to give them good, valid reasons for being the way that they are for that to then make sense and for us as readers to engage with that and to not just dismiss it as garbage, basically. It also, I think, has to be satisfyingly complex, you know, mm. to be a flawed protagonist. You can't just be like, well, I mean, maybe I'm wrong because if we think about Ebenezer Scrooge, he's just greedy, right? <laughs> That's pretty much his story. And yeah. We don't know much more about it. He's just miserly, you know, he doesn't want to let any of his money go. But that is just a fable more, yeah, than, more exactly. than it is a novel. You know, it's not a novel. So once we get into novel territory, I think the character needs to be complex. You can't pigeonhole them as just one thing because, again, that won't be believable. You know, nobody is that black and white. And so once you start weaving in complexity, like also to not always be flawed, yes. you know, they're going to have some redeeming qualities. And they're also going to have times when their flaw doesn't make them behave in a certain way or they don't choose to do that thing. And that will be interesting too. So I wonder, you do a lot of reading into books about writing. Mm. From my perspective, whenever I think about characters, I kind of steer away from these ideas of flawed protagonists or heroes and villains, and it might be different in middle grade fiction or depending on the genre you're writing in. But I tend to think more in the space of just creating realistic characters mm. and giving them the kinds of flaws that people have and the kinds of complex 
maybe contradictory flaws that people have. And we talked about this in the last episode about the before trilogy, mm. about those two characters and both of those characters having flaws and not mm. being perfect and, and being inconsistent in the way that they interact with each other. And I think I prefer to focus on what are the elements of character that they have, I guess, build them in a way that they are a complete person rather than try to think mm. simplistically about, well, I have a person, what's their flaw? Like, what yeah. is the thing about them that is going to drive it? But it does depend on the kind of story you're writing and the kind of genre you're in. That's true. And it would depend, I think, as well, if you have in your head a picture of a complete character who's more realistic, then their behaviour is not going to be black and white. It's going to depend on the circumstances. It's going to depend on who they're with. It's going to depend on what just happened immediately prior. Mm. You know, people do things when they're desperate that they wouldn't do when they're not. All these kind of context issues that can come into play and make a really interesting plot, you know, as we watch someone grappling with all these different scenarios and behaving in different ways and unpredictable ways but that are satisfying, you know, you're not just making a character do something they're not going to do. It's very much the behaviour they would display, but it's kind of shocking or surprising that they would do that, but it's still logical. I think what's key and what we've sort of been dancing around this whole time is basically that these characters need to be relatable on some level. We need to see at least some of ourselves in them or mm. some of humanity in them to be able to understand and engage and connect. And if they are the protagonist of the story, then that's all the more important because it's investing yourself to read the book to the end or watch the movie to the end. You have to care about that character. Even if it's just in the way of a train wreck, like you want to see what happens next, that is sometimes the case. Mm. Oh, um, for sure. And I, I think too, like we're going to be talking about Wuthering Heights very shortly. In Wuthering Heights, Kathy and Heathcliff, who are both deeply flawed in different, very different ways, but also very similar ways, but they see something in each other. Mm -hmm. And so as the reader, if you're watching a character love another character, then you're seeing through their eyes the reasons why they love that character. And I guess in that way, you're sort of learning to love them too, to see past perhaps the flaws. Okay, so while we're talking about flawed protagonists and Heathcliff and, and Kathy, let's try and work out what those flaws are. And probably Heathcliff is easier to start mm -hmm. with. I mean, he's very unlikable in the beginning of that novel. I mean, straight away, he's rude, he's unkempt, he's mean to the people around him. But what I think that sets up is you want to know what his story is. Mm. This guy is weird. There's something wrong with him. Why? But also, again, we've got Lockwood who's saying, I actually love this guy because he's a bastard just like me, <laughs> you know, and I feel like I'm going to really get to know this guy and really like him because I guess the, the implication is really honest. pretty quickly, though, Well, he it? does, but initially he's sort of seeing something redeemable in that. But I think we need to sort of give a bit of a recap mm. to listeners who aren't familiar with Wuthering Heights about what it's about. Look, yep. I, I'll give the cliff's note for people who want to skim over it. I will say, basically, Wuthering Heights is bold on the beautiful, right? And Kathy is Brooke <laughs> and Heathcliff is Ridge, <laughs> except they don't get married. <laughs> Seven times. It's just high drama from the get-go, mm. basically, and just all of this unrequited love, back and forth, marrying the wrong person, marrying someone you don't love, interfering in that relationship, all of this shit. But so at the core of it, Heathcliff and Kathy have this connection. 
basically, from a young age. They grew up together. They're um, soulmates. Okay, so from Kathy's perspective, she has this tension, this societal expectation maybe, mm. the tension between who she sees herself as this wild person who's, I guess, fun-loving and, and free versus the appeal of the more worldly life as a well-kept lady. And mm. she's kind of seduced. She knows where her heart is. Her heart is with Heathcliff, but she's seduced by Linton and his wealth and his lifestyle. And so she chooses money. Mm-hmm. But then basically what evolves from there is like this intergenerational trauma mm. that's brought about by her decision to marry a wealthy man and Heathcliff's inability to deal with that and his ongoing obsession with her, which then wreaks havoc on the relationships of everyone around them and then the next generation too as they have children. And so Heathcliff is obviously kind of torn apart by this marriage and he runs off to make his own fortune and comes back set on revenge pretty mm, much. Mm-hmm. Kathy dies, Heathcliff and Kathy never get together and basically Heathcliff takes it out on his children mm. and Kathy's children. Mm. And in the end, Kathy and Heathcliff, their children get together Aww. in a kind of echo of the, the love that never was. I don't know. And there's ghosts and shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, literally. Yeah. There's ghosts and shit as well. Like, you have to factor that yeah. in. And they're all stark raving mad mm. is part of it too. Mm. I mean, you've made it sound kind of quite sanitised, really. It is off the hook. It yeah. is off the chain, this shit, like what goes on. Kathy basically dies of spite. He <laughs> yeah. goes mad and sees ghosts and somehow dies of seeing ghosts. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of people die in this and I thought, well, there is this some is a bit crazy. But then you look at uh, Emily Bronte's life and, yeah, people did just die yeah, randomly just die in her often life. Often in childbirth too. Yeah. But also like there's just this look. The implied necrophilia that's going on as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, he digs up her body and, I don't know. Look, Heathcliff, he has some flaws. (laughs) Necrophilia may just be one of them. But, like, he's hot, like Ted Bundy, so it's fine. (laughs) Yeah, but but is he hot? So (laughs) Yes, he is hot. But in the book, is he hot? Yes, he comes back hot. That's important. He comes back rich. And hot. Yeah. Well, he cleaned him, so he scrubs up. He scrubs up. He's um, all buff and standing upright and looking like he's been... Serving in the army. He had a glow up. He had a glow up. Totes. I mean, it is absolutely, this is the thing, you think of these novels. So if I said to you, I've got this 19th century novel I want you to read, like your first thought wouldn't be like, this is just going to be soap opera shit. Mm. It is so intense, so violent, vulgar. Like, it's amazing. It's fascinating to read Basically the kind of shit you'd watch on TV now, but just in more formal language. Mm. <laughs> and I think it was pretty shocking when it was released. Or I'd was- like to think so. I mean, even the language that they use, like there's a lot of like equivalent of swearing mm. for the time and they don't even really seem that shocked by it, but no. it's quite intense. And an equivalent now I think would still be quite shocking. Mm. And what's weird about this novel is that it's narrated by Lockwood, but then the story is told from the perspective of Nellie Dean. Mm. Right. So you've got two layers. It's like third hand information. This novel is 100% hearsay. Don't Mm. believe any of it. It's not just Nellie Dean, right? So she's the housekeeper, Mm. but then it's Nellie Dean telling what Isabella told her. 
Yeah. So it's like Lockwood, who's narrating it, who's the dude who's just turned up to rent the place, and this is post a lot of the drama happening. Yeah. He's hearing about it all from Nellie Dean. He gets a bit sick. He's like, I'm bored. You look like you're full of gossip. you got some tea to spill. Come spill it all over me. And so he asked the housekeeper to basically dish the dirt on, mm. on this mysterious landlord. And she does. But she's like, so anyways, Isabella told me that mm. Heathcliff said to Kathy, and everything's like that. Like, you know, it's like Ferris Bueller. Yeah. Do you think that that was <laughs> intended to be like a unreliable narrator situation or that was just the device she chose to tell the story through? I just think back then they didn't think as deeply about how they told the story. They were just telling it. And mm. and maybe it was told much more in that classic style of a in mm. oral history, you know, and it, it is told that way and that's what's interesting about it. It's all told as like a bedtime story. And what it made me think of, especially because he's lying there sick in bed hearing this story, it's The Princess Bride. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's that it's all told as like an oral history. Of, I was thinking there. also about Moby Dick, which is also narrated by a dude called Ishmael, who's got nothing to do with the story, really. And he's just at the start saying, hey, I'm Ishmael. Mm. Let me tell you this The story. classic line, yeah. I'm Ishmael. <laughs> and so he hangs around for a, a chapter and then he gets into the story and relaying the story. But it's, why not just tell the story mm. instead of having the character and, tell the and story? And not even that, just pick a narrator. Like, why, yeah. are, you, why are we three layers deep? But, which isn't to say it's not wonderful because mm. it is. But another one I was thinking of too was The Book Thief, which is mm-hmm. narrated by death which is an interesting one. And then, of course, we spoke about it earlier, The Great Gatsby. Yeah, which is by um, Nick Carraway. Yeah. So lots of wonderful classic stories that are told by a narrator, which is an interesting device that you don't see as much anymore. And, I mean, The Book Thief is probably one of the more recent examples where where we have seen it. So I wonder, maybe we are supposed to question whether Heathcliff is really as bad or these are just rumours. Well, I mean, that's what you start to think because Nellie Dean's got her own flaws. Like, she's a wicked gossip for a start. Mm. She's incredibly judgmental and she likes to just insert herself into the story at intervals to sort of say, well, I mean, I told them it was a horrible idea and then they went and did it anyway. And in some ways, she's the the master and orchestrator of some of this drama and potentially loving herself sick in the midst of this episode of Bold and the Beautiful. Like, that's the impression I got, that she was just thriving on the drama and that perhaps she's a bit of a drama queen Mm. herself. And maybe that all comes from the fact that there is fuck all to do with the moors. (laughs) To be fair. This dude's sick and he's like, look, old lady, come tell me some stories about my landlord. And he's like, can you spare a couple of hours? And she's like, I can literally spare the next five days and tell you everything that's happened in the last 30 years. In real time. And he writes it all down in his diary because that's the format. It's like his diary just writes it all down. Yeah. It's fascinating. But yeah, I mean, you you do question some of it. But of course, we then, as Lockwood, witness the final. Well, no, he doesn't witness it, does he? Again, he gets the Heathcliff's end to his story Mm. via Nellie Dean as well when Mm. he returns. Oh, that's right, when he comes back. Yeah. So, who knows? It's strange. And I think part of it is the enigma of the whole thing, because Emily Bronte, I think by all accounts, was pretty reclusive or not much is known about her and what she thought about when writing this this book. So it kind of stands alone and you can... I wonder um, if she identifies with Lockwood then a little, because we open with, as you said, Heathcliff as the landlord, basically, mm. and, and Lockwood turns up to take residence in Thrushcross Grange and he meets 
with Heathcliff for the first time and is taken aback by how incredibly surly and rude yeah. and reclusive and horrible and, you know, vulgar he is. And handsome. And super hot. But, like, also sees himself in that. What does he call it? A heaven for misanthropists. He's like, this place is a heaven for misanthropists, like, basically like me. Yeah, I, I felt um, like he was taking that as, I don't know, he saw himself as a bit of a, a rough a guy. Bit of a lad. But when he actually meets someone who's rough, he's like, oh. <laughs> oh, too far. Yeah. He's like, I'll just sleep on the chair then. Oh, God, he's such a pain in the ass. Yeah. I mean, that whole scene where he... He sets a book on fire, doesn't Did he? he? Like he knocks a candle on onto oh, a yeah. diary and no, I'm thinking about when he he goes out into the snow because he's bored. Yeah, and he's like, do you know what? I'm just going to go visit Heathcliff, yeah. even though he basically said fuck even off and an never asshole. came back, yeah. like yeah. never come back. So I'm just going to go just pop in and just stir some shit. Yeah, and so he does, and of course it's snowing and he can't get back, and so he's like, so let me sleep here then. Mm. And then when they aren't super, like, keen and not ready with a bloody guest room all set up for him, he gets the shits. Yeah. He's like, well, I'll just sleep in this chair then. Yeah, you fucking will. You're lucky they let you in the door. He's, like, bashing down the door, like, threatening mm. them because they won't let him in. It's like, mate, he told you not to come here. Do we ever get his story? Like, what's, what is he doing? Lockwood. Well, he's, he's, he's a rich dude who's decided to hang out on the moors for a little while. Well, we, we learn that he had a bit of a fling mm. and then just couldn't deliver on it. Like he just freaked out and basically sent her packing for no good reason. Yeah. And then he's, I think, shamed himself out of town. Yeah. You just know that Nellie Dean's going to talk some shit about him when he's gone. Oh, totally. <laughs> she is taking notes, mental notes. All right. So where were we? Heathcliff and, and, his, his, and, his, and flaws. his flaws. I mean, we're talking about Lockwood's flaws here. Yeah. He thinks Lockwood thinks he's pretty hot. He's yeah. like, I, I know I'm not so bad looking. Yeah. You're right, though, mate. <laughs> I've seen the 1992 adaptation. You're, not, you're <laughs> no prize pick. <laughs> so you watched the 1992 one. I also watched one from oh, 1939 or something. It was Oh, really nice. Old. And that one was striking by the fact that it was obviously filmed in America and in the California desert. Oh, nice. Masquerading as the Moors. But a lot of the film adaptations that I looked up as well, they just tell the first half of the story. Mm. Like it ends when Kathy dies and the whole next generation thing is just left out. What? Yeah, most of them. What the fuck? Yeah. That's not the story. Yeah. The story is the revenge. Yeah. Who are these fucking idiots? What it needs to be is a series. It can't be a movie. You know, I listened to the audio book mm. this time around. I've read it a couple of times before, and this time for timing, I thought I'll listen yeah, to I the audio book. Well. Do you know yeah. what else? Audiobook's great, and I would recommend it to anyone who would consider, if you're into Bold and the Beautiful but you want to, like, sound smart, then just download for, like, a dollar a version of Wuthering Heights and have someone read it to you because it really helps to demystify some. Yeah. The, the version I listen to anyway the narrator, again, it's narrated by another person now. I've got another layer. But she was putting on voices and stuff, so you yeah. could tell when it was Lockwood versus when it was Nellie Dean versus yeah. when it was Isabella speaking. I wonder if, do we listen to the same version? Do you remember who? So the version I listened to, I just got it on, like, the audiobooks app on my Apple phone, and it was Wuthering Heights narrated by Ruth Golding. Oh, I think this was the same one. Then. Oh, but did you get it for free? Yeah, it's literally a podcast. Okay, so I paid 99 cents for the thing you got for free, but anyway, that's fine. So then we both listened to the same one. That's great. So you'd mm. recommend searching for the podcast. Yeah, it's, it's free. You yeah. just search for the podcast and there it is. 
yeah, anyway, thoroughly recommend that version because it does help to make it make sense yeah. to know who's speaking because it can get pretty dense. And because a lot of the dialogue is written in yeah. a dense Yorkshire accent, it can get quite dense at times. So yeah. it does help to have someone read it out. Yeah. I started off reading the printed book with notes Oh, yeah. explaining what the dialogue mm, was saying, mm-hmm. but that's too much. Like You get, get the it. gist. Yeah, you it's get just the gist. it's basically just Joseph swearing his head off constantly yeah. and telling everyone they're all, you know, degenerates. But anyway, we keep going off on tangents. We do. And what I want to know is what you think Heathcliff's flaws are. Yeah. So Heathcliff's flaws, and I want to go back to his childhood. So he starts off as basically like a street urchin in Liverpool. He can, uh, I think I recall, he can barely speak or he can barely put together mm. some words uh, mm-hmm. when, when he's found. And he's taken in and for a time, actually, he's treated as the favoured son over Hindley. He is the favourite child. Yes. That's outright yep. stated, <laughs> which is like, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> and his connection with Kathy then is that they're both, they both have this nature about them that they share that is characterised as they're wild and they're free mm. and they roam the moors and they run around and have a great time and they love being with nature, I guess, which is at odds with what cultured society values and looks like. And so, he, you know, Heathcliff at that point in his life, it's hard to say that he has a flaw and his flaw is if anything, is that he's been born and raised into kind of this wild way of living and he's not refined. Mm. Kathy reaches a certain age and she notices from a societal aspect the importance of that refinement and of wanting to improve her station and marry into to wealth, basically. And all of a sudden she sees Heathcliff as a little bit lesser. Mm. She sees that wild part of him as a flaw, well, I mean, not the parts of the wildness that she loves, but the parts that, that make him a lower class, yes. Yeah. There's yeah. the whole incident where they go not to the... Not his wild personality, but his... His appearance. His appearance, his upbringing. Well, the fact that he doesn't have money, that's all it comes down to. You know, for me, it's almost like a Garden of Eden moment, right, where one moment they're all free and just living naked mm. in the wilderness, mm-hmm. and then... She eats the apple, essentially, when they go to the Grange. She has the accident and she stays at the Grange for a couple of weeks or however long it is. And all of a sudden she, you know, in quotes, notices her nakedness. Mm. You know, and she she realises, oh, Heathcliff, you're you're dirty and you haven't washed and you haven't looked after yourself. And she kind of rejects him mm. for that. I think it's important to mention that it's it's kind of it's a self-preservation thing too. It's not completely wrapped up in a self-absorbed kind of view of I just want to be rich. Like there's an element of like I need to support myself. Like Heathcliff's got nothing. Mm. Literally what would we do? Because her brother who inherits the property, he hates yeah. Heathcliff. So he's not going to give him anything. And if they were to marry, he'd kick him out. And then what would they have? He'd be back in the streets again. So it's not just like, oh, you're not going to buy me nice things. Although I do believe in her case, there is an element of that. Mm. It's largely also just like survival. For women at that time, marriage was about survival. It's a waking up to the realities of life, Mm. basically, for her. Yeah, it's like, oh, actually, I also have to make some Mm. adult decisions here about my future, whether I like it or not. You know, she's supposedly wild. Why wouldn't she run off with him and just be poor? Yeah, so I remember this moment in the book about... Mm. Heathcliff uh, and Kathy having a discussion and saying, Kathy saying something along the lines of, if only you go and make your fortune and come back and then we can be happy together. Mm. And there's 
the moment where Heathcliff overhears a conversation with Nelly and Kathy, and that's when he runs away. Yeah, because she says, I could never marry him. It would degrade me to marry him, I believe is what she said. That's right. And so Heathcliff runs away for two years, makes his fortune, really efficient to like. Yeah, super two- efficient. I wish I could make my fortune in two years. Yeah. Have a glow up, come back, just be like, hi. <laughs> and he comes back expecting to walk into the room and be like, here I am, I've done it. Mm. I'm now a worthy match for you, Kathy. But that's not the case. Yeah, he finds out prior to his arrival that she's gotten married. Mm. And that what, that's what prompts him to come back, to just kind of see it one last time. So yeah. he says. So she's married to Edgar Linton and mm. he knows it and he turns up. And at this point he's, I know this is the, this is the revenge story, right? And this mm. is the point I think where you start to lose Heathcliff. He loses the high ground because at that point he's, he's done all he can. And it's too late. Mm. There's no no getting divorced. Yeah, he's missed the boat. He's missed the boat. And what I fi- find really interesting is the parallel between just Heathcliff and like just incel culture that's <laughs> that's going on now. Mm-hmm. You know, because he's just enraged. Like she owes him. Yeah. How dare she? She's essentially his property. How dare she have an independent thought and do yeah. something else? Like, and he is an incel at that point, literally. <laughs> I think his frustration though is that he knows that. She also wants to be with him and she says it. Yeah, but he has been friend-zoned pretty clearly. But look, it, it's Kathy who says, I am Heathcliff and, and we're the same person when we're soulmates. You know, and she implies that it's just because he's, I guess, he's not worthy of her from a marriage standpoint. And so it's not that it's unrequited. It's not that it's not reciprocated. He's not running around being like, she should like me. I'm a nice guy. In fact, it's kind of the opposite in a way, isn't it? (laughs) Like these days, all the incels would say, oh, women don't want nice guys. They Mm. only want the the fuck boys, basically, which is what Heathcliff represents. He's the bad guy Mm. and she's gone off with the nice guy. So take Mm. that, incels. There you go. (laughs) How do you like that? (laughs) (laughs) So his response to Kathy marrying Linton is basically to go after Linton's sister and marry her. Yeah. And so he turns on the Riz. And <laughs> Putting on the Riz. <laughs> and charms her and makes her fall in love with him. And mm-hmm. basically they Which get isn't married. hard because he's super hot he's now. He's super hot and, and he's super rich and she's... Bored. Lived a very sheltered life there. <laughs> and yeah, so they get married. But then he treats her like shit. Immediately. Yeah. yeah. Incredibly physically abusive yeah. and emotionally abusive. And that's what I would call probably his biggest flaw. You know, he's physically violent and completely undermines her to the point where she has no confidence left at all. She wants to die. It's all she thinks about. But you know what's interesting in this, that part of the story where Isabella Linton, who is Edgar's sister, she's saying, I love Heathcliff and I want to be with him and mm. we want to get married. And Kathy is the one saying, you don't know him mm. and he's a monster. Mm. He says it himself. Yeah, but, but he's like th- he literally says to her, like, I am going to marry you to take yeah. your brother's money. And she's like, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> I guess that part of the story didn't really make sense to me because at that point she's never said he's a monster. She's always been of the mind of, well, we're soulmates and I love him, but mm. you know, this is just not the right thing. But for her to come forward and say he's a monster, I wonder if that is part of the unreliable narration part of the story. That's part of Kathy's flaws. Like, she doesn't want anyone else to have him. Mm. She wants to have a cake and eat it too. Mm. And Isabel's not allowed to have any. She's incredibly jealous and vain 
and can't stand the idea of him being with her at all, even if it is for bad reasons. Yeah. So she makes out like, oh, I'm doing you a big favour by being honest here. Mm. But you see in the scene where she completely humiliates Isabella, mm. Heathcliff's there and in front of her she's like, oh, we've just been arguing about you and she's just desperately madly in love with you. And I yeah. tro- tried to tell her you're a monster, but she just won't hear it. Like, mm. it's just purely to humiliate her. Yeah. To no other gain. So I think that's her motivation, not mm. to really be the bearer of any sort of honesty or warning. Yeah. It almost pushes her to it, really. But, you know, th- there is a path that Heathcliff could have taken of, well, all right, it is what it is. I'm going to move on with my life. But he doesn't take that path. No. He's, his biggest flaw is his vindictive nature, I think. Mm. It's just the fact that, well, his first thought is then revenge. It is. Mm. And not revenge on... Kathy, but revenge on like everyone else mm. in the world. Mm-hmm. Like, so he buys Wuthering Heights from Hindley, who's basically after his wife well, started in childbirth. He doesn't buy it from him. He manipulates it out of him. Yeah, through, through paying for his gambling debts and mm. all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But then he leaves him. He lets him stay there just so he can fuck with him, basically, <laughs> just so he can be like, eh. and then for some reason Hindley really hates him and carries around this gun because he wants to kill him. Yeah. So the second, the next generation Mm. then is Heathcliff's son with Isabella, Mm -hmm. and their son is called. Not to confuse matters, Linton. This is very Dickensian. Everyone's Mm. everyone's cousin. They've all got the same last name. So we have the next generation. So Kathy and her fancy rich husband have a daughter who they call, not to confuse matters, Kathy. (laughs) (laughs) And then. Heathcliff and Isabella, who was formerly Isabella Linton, is now Isabella Heathcliff, mm-hmm. have a son who Isabella calls Linton. Yeah. And then there is another child in the mix, which is the son of Kathy's brother, Hindley, who you mentioned earlier. So he has a son as well, and his son's name is Hareton. Mm. So these three are now like the next generation. So Hindley's wife has died in childbirth, having Hareton. Mm-hmm. And so he's driven to, to drink and gambling, and that's how he loses the house. Kathy um, also dies in childbirth. Well, sorry, shortly, of, shortly, shortly thereafter, after. as a result of bloody postnatal psychosis by, mm-hmm. the, by what it would seem. Although, like I said, I feel like she just died for spite. Yeah. Because Heathcliff disappeared, and so she's like, well, now I'm just going to die. Like, they seem to be able to just decide to die then. It's like, mm. you know what, I've had enough. A few of them just kind of decided, didn't they? Yeah, Because even, even Linton Sr. Yeah. seemed to just be like, oh, I've had enough. No, sorry, I beg your pardon. Edgar Linton. Oh, right. After right. Kathy died, he's kind of like, yeah, I might just die now. Up. Anyway, give me six months to die. <laughs> and they all know it, like he's in bed, he's going to die. Oh, he's going to die, for well, sure. Yeah, like, oh, he's a bit sick, he's going to die. Yeah. Far out, man. All right, so those are the kids. And not, I guess not to get too much into the nitty-gritty there of the plot, but basically... The point is that Heathcliff just makes their life hell. All of essentially. them. Essentially. Yeah. All of them. But it's revenge. It's purely to be like, look, you guys thought you were all better than me mm. and ha-ha, I've, I've won the day. I win in the end. Yeah. Although he doesn't win in the end, I think, is what the fun part of the story is. He goes to all mm. that trouble and he tries to set up mini Kathy with his son, who mm. he despises, Linton. Yeah. So he's kind of almost recreating the past and we mm. have Hareton who despite the fact that Hareton is the son of his enemy yeah. he's much more like Kathy and much more like Heathcliff so he's kind of a mini Heathcliff really yeah. and he sees himself in that boy and has raised that boy since 
his own father died, treats him like absolute garbage. Well, he's, he's raised him in, like, he's fed him. As a dog. But he's never educated him or anything. No, but, like he, but can't he, read. it's almost like a, a self-flagellation thing because mm. he sees himself in this in this boy. And so we have a basically a repetition of exactly what happened before where Kathy, mini Kathy and Linton are getting pushed together, but it doesn't take much pushing really, and they're going to get married. And meanwhile, Hareton's on the side who's in love with Kathy and he's like a mini Heathcliff pining away while she goes off and marries Linton, who's not a good match for her. And so, yeah, we just see history repeat itself basically. Mm. So I guess the ending is that this whole time Heathcliff has been haunted by Kathy. I think in a metaphorical way he's been haunted. Mm. And when But um, also in a quite literal <laughs> Well when when Lockwood turns up, mm. then it becomes literal. And mm-hmm. I actually like the way that this is all handled because you know, Lockwood is an outsider. He doesn't know any of these people, mm. but he reads the names Kathy and mm. you know, in a diary and then he falls asleep and he has this vision of a of a ghost and she's Kathy's at the window saying, Let me in, let me mm. in. And Heathcliff hears this and it's like twenty years after she died and he's really thrown off there she's still out there in the moors haunting the moors like he's asked her to he Mm, said haunt me and be out there and that's when he dies for Mm. whatever reason he dies okay so i have a theory right Mm. so we have lockwood who decides he's sleeping over at heathcliff's and he's like invited himself over and he's just gonna stay and kathy mini kathy tells him oh go sleep go sleep up in this room there's a room don't worry Mm. about him he's a cranky pants you can come stay in this room she takes him into this room basically puts him in a cupboard yeah. Yeah, there's a bed in there yeah. and there's these old books of Kathy's and mm. this is where he has this vision. There's some trees tapping on the window outside and he imagines her breaking in. Although his nightmare, he doesn't know all the backstory at this point. No. And yet he gets this incredibly detailed information about a woman who's been haunting for 20 years, which is accurate. Well, he's read and who little looks bits like. of her diary right at that point. Oh, well, yeah, no, And he's right. seen her name and he's – so he's he's gone in with the seed mm. in his mind and he's extrapolated this whole but thing. But he doesn't know the 20 years missing. That's a No, no, but all he says is, oh, I saw Kathy and – No, he says she's been wandering the moors for 20 years. Yeah, I don't and know. There's a, My point being there is an element in it that he shouldn't know that he does mm. know after the ghostly experience, which tells you like – it's potentially real. Yeah, that, you know that, what I mean? Right. Yeah. Anyway, let me get back to my mm. point, which was, so he's in this cupboard bed <laughs> and when he has this hallucination when he falls asleep or perhaps for mm. real sees ghosts. And then later, that's where Heathcliff dies, right? Yeah. Where he goes to reconnect with Kathy yeah. and get as close as possible to her spirit. My theory is there is black mould in that fucking bed, <laughs> mate. Like, why are they all hallucinating there? <laughs> why are they all getting sick and, like, dying? <laughs> yeah, no one's been in that room for 20 years. No, either, we're on so. the mall. Everything's yeah. damp yeah. all the time. Like, seriously, there's a mould issue. Yeah, that's probably it. Seriously. <laughs> just needs a good cleaning, good airing. Yeah, what's Nellie Dean been doing? <laughs> yeah, just just too busy gossiping, not getting out the Ajax. Too much tea, not enough Ajax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so it ends with basically Heathcliff and... Kathy reconnecting in the afterlife, I guess, is the implication. They're now two souls once again allowed to, to be with each other forever mm-hmm. in the hereafter. And they do say, oh, he still haunts the moors. And then just like to really fuck with Heathcliff after everything. Like you think he's won the day basically before he dies because he's got all the property now. He's like, I showed you. And he's manipulated the little ones into marrying. Like he actually kidnaps Kathy and makes her marry his son, mini Kathy. And so he's gotten what he wanted. But then his son dies. 
Mm. And Minnie Kathy ends up off with Hareton. Yep. So, like, in in essence, we've come full circle and now Minnie Kathy and Minnie Heathcliff basically have gotten together. Yep. And it's thwarted all of Heathcliff's dastardly plans and love has won in the end. Mm. Or so it would seem. In a way. Mm. After just causing a And in another more rampage. accurate way. <laughs> <laughs> the villain one. But, you know. Yeah. So thinking about the movies, and I mentioned most of them just stop halfway and forget this Which, whole exterior. I but can't I think, even fathom that. That's the dumbest thing I've ever well, heard. Well, I think the, the reason is that in the second half of the movie, Heathcliff is just this asshole, And Yeah, but it's great. Yeah, but it's they're painted drama. as a romance and he can't be the romantic lead if he's just this bastard to everyone and he ruins everyone's life. So I think that's why. I think they want to keep it as a... You know, tell the story of a romance and it's... But it's not a it's romance, like a, so they're doing a wrong thing. Go to Jane Austen if that's what you no, want. No, but like you said, a tragic romance, like a Romeo mm. and Juliet. They yeah. die at the end. They never get together. Mm. No, that's the end. I mean, imagine if after Romeo and Juliet, Romeo wakes up from the poison and then he's like, fuck this, and he goes and kills everyone. <laughs> like, that's a different... Well, there's a lot of death and destruction in Romeo and Juliet. There really mm. is. Like, there's, you know, whole families going down, basically. So I don't see why you can't honour that and still... Like, here's the point, right? You read the book, you know he's horrible, and yet there is a romance there and people can't let that go. Clearly, if they're going to make a whole movie and make it a romance when it's not, but it is. Yeah. It's not, but it is. And it's awful, but there's still something that's tugging at people's heartstrings because people are still responding to it as if it's a romance. Mm. However, I don't feel like you need to remove all the bad stuff to make it that. It's, look, it's a bad romance. Yeah. We need Lady Gaga to do the soundtrack <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone will understand. <laughs> We need the Baz Luhrmann production. Oh, yes. Can you imagine? That'd be amazing. But I want it as a series. I mean, the audio book itself or the podcast, if you listen to it, it's like 14 hours. There is a series, actually. I'm sure there is. How could there not be? But I want a modern one. I don't want it to be modernised. I just want it to be redone in, like, high production values. I'd really love to watch it. Get Mm. on a Netflix. I wanted to ask, because I'm kind of a little bit baffled as to why Heathcliff is attractive from a woman's point of view. Mm-hmm. Like, what are the things? Because looking at him, he's kind of a dick. You've kind got to, of you've a got dick? to say. He's kind, kind of, of a dick. dick. But he is held up as this great romantic figure that is mm. desirable, I guess. And especially in the movies, when they usually choose someone that's pretty handsome. He's handsome in the book. I need to emphasize that. He's always been sort of handsome, but rough, right? Yeah. All right. I'm not going to speak for every woman here, but here's a little insight into my brain. (laughs) This afternoon, Andy told me he loved me. And I said, oh, yeah, but would you dig up my dead body just to have one more look at me? And he's like, no. (laughs) And I'm like, well, that's not true love then, so forget it. (laughs) But, like, there's something about that intensity that's appealing. And, I mean, no, I don't want him to seek revenge on our children and our children's children over me or whatever. But like just the idea that you could love someone so deeply that you would literally kill and be killed mm. for them. Like, again, it's fiction. If someone's going to kill and be killed in real life, yeah. that's horrifying. But in fiction, in this fictional world, the idea that you would is appealing. Mm. The idea that you could be so deeply in love with someone as to feel like you are two halves of a whole and that you can't live without them. You know, they both say that line, like, I cannot live without my life. That's how they feel about each other. Like, that's, to have someone feel about you that way, like, that's appealing, no? 
Mm, Especially if they're hot and rich, you know, got it all going on. Mm. But also, like, I can understand because I'm a romantic person, I can understand that feeling of just being so enmeshed with someone and being obsessed, you know, and just that's all you can think about and nothing else will do. Mm. Then that's the romantic thing, right, where you just, like, throw out all the red flags, Mm. the big glaring ones, and all you can see is the good in that person. And if they were together, he would be good. He was never abusive to Kathy. He wasn't violent or horrible to her, and that's not to excuse his behaviour later, but he wasn't like that with her. Mm. So she didn't see that. It's like she said he was wild and he was a monster and stuff, but, like, what evidence did she have? He was never a monster Mm. to her. But we don't know what went on on the moors. I'm curious Mm. to know, what do you think? Was there any hanky-panky? I would put money on it, yes. (laughs) (laughs) In the 1939 version, there certainly wasn't. Mm. But in the one that we watched. The there, yeah, the 1992, mm. there was. And I was like a bit surprised by mm. that because it's not ever mm. addressed at all. There's no physical connection yeah. between the two of them. But there wouldn't have been at that time. But this is the thing. Wouldn't there have? Like they, they ramble on those moors quite a lot. No, no. I mean in the in the novel. You oh, would not write that in the novel. Yeah, but it's not even kind of implied. Like yeah. it's, there's, it's never touched on yeah. that of any physical relationship. There for sure was. I mean, look, we're talking about a a wild gypsy boy and, you know, come on. (laughs) Well, then we're getting into the other side of the appeal then, aren't we? How does he know that that when when the mist is coming in, then, like, he can't see more than 100 metres? We know why he knows that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this is is the absolute incredibly relevant Mm. other side to his appeal. Yeah. Sex appeal, right? Like... You've got Linton, who's just a dandy, right? Like, I don't know, there's big question marks over both generations of Lintons and yep. whether they should be marrying women at all. But, like, neither of them are interested in each other sexually ever. That's yeah. never – it's just kind of like, oh, well, he's handsome and he's nice. And and then you've got Heathcliff and he's obviously, you know, he's rugged and muscular and all this. Mm. Like, you know, fill in the blanks. So we both watched the 1992 adaptation of Wuthering Heights – Starring Ray Fiennes as Heathcliff and Juliette Binoche as Catherine and Kathy, <laughs> both of them, which was a weird choice because that was a weird choice. Her French accent was a little bit <laughs> off-putting. Did you find that? Not a single person had a Yorkshire accent. No. That, that was off-putting. And look, the casting was a mess. A dog's mm. breakfast. That film. Like, whose idea? When you told me you were watching the adaptation with Ray Fiennes, I was like, okay, so he's Lockwood then. I was for sure thinking he was Lockwood. And then when I realised he was Heathcliff, I was just like, I think I vomited a little bit in my Mm. mouth. I'm like, that is just the worst choice. But he was young. A lot of actors, weird actors, do kind of romantic lead roles when they're young. It's just like, oh, let's get some guy that we think is handsome to play Heathcliff so that he'll be appealing. He's got these bright blue eyes that are completely inappropriate. (laughs) Like, he's not the whitest guy going, but he's pretty white. None of the adaptations I saw had, like, a dark-skinned... Heathcliff. And oh, there there's was... a, there's one adaptation with a black guy. Oh, there is. Yeah, where okay. they sort of switched it up. But, like, that's more accurate. Yeah, but exactly. It's, <laughs> it's a strange thing that they just never, I mean, you know, speculate as to why. And you know, it was just weird. He's just wrong. Like, he's much too, he's got the refined kind of look to him. Like, oh, does he? I thought he was a bit, he was pretty rugged and wild I mean, in that. Yeah, kind of. But not in his soul. Like that's they made him look that way, and he can he plays a good bastard. Mm. Like he's definitely we know he's a good villain, right? He is the villain, Voldemort. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He who shall not be named. But like he plays a good villain, but he's he doesn't 
play a good, rugged gypsy mm. boy. Like, what the hell? He's meant to have black eyes. And that's important. Why is that important? I don't know. If Catherine's going to be French, then whatever. <laughs> like, you just throw the casting out the window. And, but at least, and the reason I chose that version is that at least they told the whole story. But n- terribly. I think they rushed the story and so they didn't tell the whole story. They told a couple of bullet points of the story because there's no way you could factor it all in. Mm. And um, they did. They went a level deep as well because they had Emily Bronte yeah. narrating it at yeah. the start. And she's, she makes an appearance and then at the end she comes back. <laughs> like it's Emily Bronte telling the story of Lockwood mess. telling the story. of yeah. like, I don't know what they were thinking. But it's interesting that you would choose like a white guy to play Heathcliff. Mm like a whitewashing situation. It's a safe choice. I think that's Is the... it? Not to anybody who loves the book. Mm. I don't think so. I mean, you can argue, oh, he's handsome and so therefore women will just eat it up. And maybe yeah. they did, but I don't know. Like it didn't have a great rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I didn't love it. I thought they glossed over everything, but I mm. thought the casting was horrendous. Yeah. And Hareton, who is like the mini Heathcliff, he made a better Heathcliff. I'm like, put him in coach. <laughs> Get Ray Fine's <laughs> Put him as Lockwood. Get us a proper Heathcliff. It's all for the poster, isn't it? They just want a a good poster that people go, oh, that looks interesting. I mean, I was whinging about Ethan Hawke's hair last time and Mm. saying it needs to be visually appealing. But in my opinion, he doesn't make a visually appealing Heathcliff. Mm. His hair dye job is too distracting. So who is your ideal Heathcliff? Well, he's too old now, but like Antonio Banderas. Bring him back. Mm. Like at that time, he would have been the right age, maybe. I mean, Catherine is meant to be like insanely beautiful herself Mm. and not to discredit the actor who played her and she was very 90s she was 90s beautiful i mean if elaine bennis and julia roberts had a baby it would be her (laughs) right (laughs) she was pretty big in the 90s actually she was in a few big movies she she distractingly looks like julia roberts like to the point where you're like are you related but the hair and the and the she was actually in the same some of the same movies as julie delpy i got it i got a Bit of a Julie Delpy vibe from mm. her as well, actually. Maybe yeah. it was just the French accent. I don't know. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, I don't know, when you see these adaptations and they just don't get the memo on what's important mm. and it's like they're trying to push some other agenda about the story mm. and it's irritating. It's like it's not the original. This is definitely one of those situations where you'd say the book's better than the movie because <laughs> it's got way more going on. But I do feel like a, a TV series could capture it and really get into it because there's there's a lot of other unexplored stuff too, like we just talked about. Does does anything go on in the moors? And there's the whole necrophilia angle you brought up, like the really <laughs> yeah, in Game the... of Thrones, the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's plenty of bloody familial. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like they could go the whole stepbrother. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, in the 1992 adaptation, he digs up. Yeah, he digs her up and just... moves her. And okay, all they show is him digging, digging it up, mm. and then opening it, and you yeah. just see his face. You don't see what happens next. Yeah. It, there is also a scene where she's lying in state in the house, and he breaks in and like pulls the shroud off her face and like gives her a big hug, mm. her dead body, which is creepy as. In the 1930s version, he basically, when she's dying, he takes her over to the window mm. and to look out over the moors one last time, and he dies in her arms. She dies in she, his Sorry, she dies. No, they, they just turned it over on his head. Wow, that's really going a different angle. No, she dies in his arms as they're looking out over the moors. And it's kind of awkward because he's there holding his dead body 
And then and it's Linton weekend at Bernie's and style. everyone comes in and he's just <laughs> holding her and they're like, um, so he puts some sunglasses on her and a Hawaiian shirt and he's like, everything's fine. <laughs> no, but the priest comes in and it's like a kind of awkward situation That's where very strange. the husband walks in and he's just holding his dead wife up near next to the window. <laughs> Yeah, it's just one of those awkward situations. So what are you doing exactly? <laughs> just we're looking at the moors. Like, <laughs> right. Can you just like <laughs> not? Did you, you have somewhere to be? <laughs> in terms of writing style, like apart mm. from the layered l- upon layer of hearsay in the narration. Another interesting thing that I don't think would fly these days. Well, I mean, we've been talking about the adverbs, right, from the yeah. not quite right press. That's adverb central. Mm. And and as well, there's a lot of ejaculating going on, there like is. on and off the moors, right? That's what kept me interested. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to read one of my favourite lines. Not really, but just a line that stood out to me. So this is Lockwood. He's just trying to break into the house because they won't let him in because he's just gone out in the fucking snow mm-hmm. and thinks he deserves to be housed anyway. So he's banging on the door and they won't let him in. And the line is, wretched inmates, I ejaculated mentally. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of that? Mm. Do you reckon that would get through these days? No, probably not. <laughs> probably, it, does, it does make you think, like, how does one ejaculate like, mentally? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's of its time. I don't think you can get away with writing like that now, but you can't get away with writing like Charles Dickens now as well, just mm. piling words on top of each mm. other until you eventually get to the point. Mm. But part of that is because of the technology of the time. Like you yeah. just write everything out longhand. You're not going to go back and edit, edit and move shit around and get to the publisher and they just print it basically. Like that'll do. You, you just can't compare it. You can't compare something that was written so long ago under different circumstances, the novel was still fairly new, really, in England, less than mm. 100 years old. And what we think of as rules and what we think of as good structure just wasn't there. They were, they were finding their way. They were trying new things. They were mm. working it out. So, And how sad it is that we're in the situation we're in now because you do feel like if she was reincarnated and submitted that manuscript, that either it would get binned because it took sort of too long to mm. get to the heart of the plot or someone would go no I love this like the characters are so gripping and the story so gripping but like you have to completely rewrite yeah. it and make it much simpler and follow a three-act structure and just mm. you know xyz and just make it so goddamn generic yeah that all you're getting is you know these characters and this drama mm. but you're not getting any of that just that luxuriating in all of the detail and in the relationships and the interrelationships between everybody that I think makes it so unique. And I think that's why, it's a big reason why people still love novels of this time period is that you don't find that Mm. with contemporary novels. So Wuthering Heights, five out of five. Nice. That's good. It's good. Do you have any closing remarks? It's me. (laughs) (laughs) I'll let Kate Bush do the talking for me. So now that I've given you a book that you actually enjoyed, what are you giving me? All right. So for my recommendation, I've chosen a book that I actually recently read. So it's still fresh in my mind. And it's a book called Piranesi by Susanna Clarke. It's a fairly recent novel. 
I think it was 2021 that mm-hmm. it was published. And so, look, I quite enjoyed this book. It's very modern, just to take a step away from the 19th century. But what it is all about is a mystery. So you get thrown into this situation that you don't really know what's going on. And I find it found it interesting reading it from a, a writing perspective is just thinking about how it's been constructed and how that that mystery is set up and drawn out through the through the space of the novel to kind of keep you interested guessing trying to figure out what's going on until the reveal at the end. I mean, so that's typically what a mystery tries to do, but yes. It is. Okay. But it's not it's not a murder <laughs> mystery. There is a mysterious thing happening and you you don't quite know even where the novel is set basically. Oh, okay. So anyway, read it, see what you like, see what you think about it, and we'll talk about it on the next episode. Okie dokie. So I hope you were floored by that discussion. <laughs> oh, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> floored by that comment. And until next time, right on. Right on. Thank you for listening to Not Quite Right. If you'd like to reach us via email or follow us on social media, you can find all the links on our website, notquiterightpodcast.com. That's W-R-I-T-E. And if you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcasting app. Something doesn't seem quite right. Now, we should have framed this whole writing thing in the context of flawed protagonists because you're a bit of a flawed protagonist. Rude. You can't finish your story. That's not... That's, oh, it's a, just finish it, you fuck. <laughs> like, fucking finish it. <laughs> I'm aggravating everyone. I feel... Um, I'm going out in sympathy with George R. R. Martin. Mm. Mm. Oh, but he, like... Uh, I get him, though. He's, like, oh. fucking a 70s. Is he? Yeah, he's in, he? his, he's in his 70s and he had, like he's been writing his whole life and he wrote all these long books and then he just had this critical success and he went on speaking tours and he obviously loves it. Yeah. And then people are like, write a book and he's like, fuck it, man, I'm not <laughs> going to go write a book. Like, <laughs> this is awesome, I'm rich now. Like, everyone loves me, I'm not going to fucking go write a book. Yeah. <laughs> totally understandable. Why would you do I'm that? Die. Someone else, Why Brandon Sanderson will write like books for him. They've got more flaws than the Twin Towers. I'm just trying to shock you now. Oh, never forget. I'm sorry, that's awful and deeply insensitive. Also, I'm deeply flawed. Your fatal flaw is you can't stop talking about 9-11. Sniffing so your book. It's, it's, a, it's a new one and they smell nice. You don't like the smell of books? I do, but like... It's fucking great. <laughs> oh, yikes. Mm-hmm. To you, every fiction is an erotic fiction. <laughs> should see me in a bookshop. <laughs> I really don't know about that. I mean, it smells fine. It smells like a book. It smells good. <laughs> <laughs> do I need to sanitise it? <laughs>